Last week he talked about uh, Kedashim. It's interesting, as Steve was praying, he basically gave all the definitions of what I spelled out that Kedashim means. It comes from the root Kadosh. means set apart, sanctified, consecrated, holy, all of those things. And we, I talked about last week that Parsha Kedashim is often referred to as the holiness code. Well, and more, which we are in this week, is also called the holiness code. But it's the holiness code for the priests. So it carries on that same theme, but it now elevates from the rest of the people to the priests who are serving. Amor comes from the root Amar, which can mean to say, to speak, or it could even mean to command. Amor covers several focal points, but there's one central theme. It's the same theme we talked about last week, and that theme is holiness. Holiness, set apart for God. So a holy God requires, even commands, holiness from his people. And otherwise, otherwise, not so holy people. But he wants them to come into his holiness. So the main focal points of Immor are the priesthood, the sacrifices, and the holidays. In chapter 21, we look at the priesthood. And we see that it says that a priest was supposed to be, if we read chapter 21, verse 6, Kadosh Yehiyu Lelohim, Lelohechem. They are to be holy to their God. It's not about being holy to the people, but it's being holy before God, just as we should be. And again, we pointed out how Kedashim comes from Kadosh, and we're still dealing with that topic today. So the priests were set apart to serve God. They were the ones that offered the sacrifices, offered the gifts to God from the people. And in their function, they were supposed to bring the people closer to God. And in doing that, they bring God closer to the people. So we can see the importance of the priests being holy, set apart, sanctified, consecrated, because they had a major function of bringing the people and God together. A priest could not, as we read in our passage here, make himself tame, unclean, defiled, by touching a dead person, or even being in the same house with a dead person, except six people. That would be his father, his mother, his son, his daughter, his brother, or his unmarried Betula, virgin sister. The rabbis also would include the priest's wife, making it seven people that he could be defiled by. There's actually a story 
of one of the priests at Pesach. And as you can imagine, Pesach was a very busy time, and all the priests were required to serve because there were many lambs bring bought to offer, and so they needed every hand they could. Well, this one particular priest, his wife, died on Ere of Pesach. Well, he said, well, my obligation really is to the people. And I was with her at her, her, her bedside, and in the hospital, I was with her the whole time, and I spent my lifetime with her, so I don't need to tend to her. I need to tend to the people. Well, sounds like a good idea. Sounds reasonable. But he was reprimanded, saying that your responsibility is to sit Shiva. You need to spend seven days mourning your wife's death. One more pair of hands is not going to interrupt what we're doing. Your importance in the community is not as important as your obligation to your family. Now, because of their position representing God, the priests were actually held to a higher standard of morality than anybody else. A priest could never, as we read this morning, be married to a prostitute or a divorcee. The daughter of a priest would be burned to death if she became a prostitute or profaned her father. So, you know, the restrictions on being a a priest were pretty high. This was just the lower level of priests. Now, because of the higher position of the high priest, the standards for them were even higher when it came to marriage and mourning rites and all. Verses 13 through 15 says, we shall, He shall take a wife in her virginity, a widow or one divorced, or one who has been defiled as a prostitute, he is not to marry. He is to take a virgin from his own people as a wife, so as not to corrupt his offspring among his people. For I am Adonai who sanctifies him. So besides the requirement of the regular priests, the high priest had to marry a virgin For what reason? It tells us to be certain that the next high priest was truly his son. God has always expected more of his leaders because they represent a holy and perfect God. So the priests were supposed to be without major physical defect. Now there's some argument these days about the blemishes and the scars and lame and all of that. Because what some rabbis would say is, and I I don't necessarily agree or disagree with them, they say that because a person has a defect on their body, shouldn't disallow them from serving in a leadership position. Okay. They also say it shouldn't prohibit them from being called to the bima for their bar mitzvah. I don't disagree with that at all. But again, when we're talking about the priests, we're talking about the high priest, there was a higher standard. So as you come down the ladder, okay, maybe it's okay if you're a rabbi, has a defect, 
Let's not go there. But to serve as a priest or high priest, higher level of expectancy. Chapter 22 talks about the sacrifices. It tells us that the animals that the priests offered to God had to be without major physical defects. And that's because God demands and deserves the very best. And we shouldn't dare bring him anything that is blemished. Why not? Because the, the sacrifices that point us, these sacrifices point us to Yeshua, the Messiah, who was without defect, who was unblemished. He was the perfect sacrifice. So if these animals were a representation of the coming Messiah, they need to be without defect as well. In addition to that, the animals were, that were offered by the priests and then eventually eaten by the priests and their families had to be eaten while they themselves were ceremonial clean, ceremonially clean. So they had to go through a purification process before they even received, sacrificed, and ate those animals. A holy God had a holy people with a holy priesthood who offered holy sacrifices in a holy place. That takes me... That, that, that actually makes me think of the story that a lot of people try to cite on the Temple Mount when Yeshua came and overturned the money changers' tables. And I've talked about it before. It has nothing to do with the fact they were buying and selling. It had to do with cheating the people. They could bring a perfectly good lamb, but the priests would look at it and say, no, there's a, there's a little scar on his nose. You have to buy this lamb. Now, I can only imagine this probable revolving door behind the scenes where this very lamb that they rejected goes back there, comes out, and they now sell it to somebody else. They were cheating people. That's what it was all about. They were going above and beyond what was required of them, and they were ripping the people off. Chapter 23 tells us that God gave his people the Moadim, holy days, appointed times. They were times of rest and times of refreshing. There were times of fellowship and there were times of worship. Times of celebrating and times to remember with thanksgiving everything that God had done for them. What's different about us today? We should have that same attitude about the holidays. I don't see anywhere where these holidays were changed. Not by God. Aside from Shabbat, the seven Moedim, the seven appointed times are Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, Shavuot, or Pentecost, a day of blowing the shofar, or Yom Teruah, Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, and Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles. Passover, again, aside from Shabbat, is the first 
holiday. In the biblical calendar, not in the Jewish calendar. They're not Jewish feasts, they're God's feasts. We have to remember that Israel's redemption from Egypt was a picture of a much greater deliverance. The Pesach lamb, the blood on the doorposts, all pointed to a future and holier victim or sacrifice, Yeshua, our Messiah. His blood was spilled so that God could once again pass over the sins of not only the Jewish people, but also the Gentiles, and redeem us from our spiritual Egypt. The next holiday was matzah, or unleavened bread, which immediately followed and is very closely tied with Passover. The Israelite people were instructed to eat unleavened bread and remember that their hasty departure from Egypt caused them to eat bread that hasn't had time to rise. For believers today, this should be a reminder for us to put away the leaven, put away our sin, and be holy to our God. To be holy and sanctified before God, we need to purge ourselves from our uncleanness and become like him. Remember, we talked about that too. We weren't instructed to be God. We were instructed to be like God. That's what the instruction was. Holy God, holy people. Then, then we have first fruits, which along with Passover and unleavened bread, first fruits was presenting God the first sheaf of the barley harvest. It was a reminder to the Israelites and to us that it was not the soil, it was not the rain, it wasn't the sunlight or the dew, not even the skill of their own skill at planting and nurturing that was responsible for their abundant harvest. They had to remember it was God who brought it. They needed to look past the whole sower and reaper mentality and realize God, the God of Israel was the giver of their bountiful harvest. This holiday of first fruits also had a deeper and more meaningful meaning later in Scripture. Rav Shaul, the Apostle Paul, called Yeshua the first fruits. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning at verse 20, when he said, But now Messiah has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also has come through a man. For as in Adam all die, so also in Messiah he made all alive. But each in his own order. Messiah, the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Messiah, then the end when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all rule and all authority and power. So because Messiah lives, all of those who are redeemed by him, will come alive as well. None of them will ever be forgotten. Know for certain. Because he lives, we will live also. Then we have Shavuot, or Pentecost. 
It's a time to give thanks for God's provisions of the wheat harvest. It's also a day that is associated with the Torah being given. Remember, we've talked about, right now we're in the midst of counting the Omer. We're counting the time between Pesach and Shavuot. How many know what, what, where we are right now? i got three hands. 28 days, or four weeks, is where we are today. Particularly important to us is that it's also the holiday, according to Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit was given. Beginning at verse 1 of chapter 2, book of Acts, when the day of Shavuot had come, they were all together in one place. Suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And tongues like fire spreading out appeared to them and settled on each one of them. They were filled with the Ruach HaKodesh and began to speak with other tongues as the Ruach enabled them to speak out. Then we go to the next Moed where it seems like in the Jewish community, this is when their actual observance is focused. doesn't focus on everything else, but when we get to Yom Teruah, which is the holiday of hearing the shofar, According to the scripture, the shofar was blown for several reasons. One was to warn of danger. It was to warn of war. It was to call assembly together. It's a time for us as believers to search deep within our own hearts and our souls and go to war against anything and everything that doesn't line up with the word of God. It's not a time that's taken lightly. During that time, during the entire month of Elul, leading up to that time, it's all about introspection. It's all about searching yourself and preparing for the high holy days. That brings us to the next Moed, which is the Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur. That's the day that was set apart for the Israelites to get right with God. It's a time for us all to remember that not only do we confess our sins, but we make things right with ourselves and God in our hearts and our souls. We should always remember that no man will see God if you're not holy. You're not kadosh. You're not set apart. You're not consecrated. And a holiday that a lot of people really, really like, to me, it's, I mean, it's just, it's one of many, but Sukkot, booths, tabernacles. It's the final harvest festival where we give thanks to God for the harvest. It's a reminder for us today of the harvest of humanity. It's a picture of Messianic Jews and Messianic Gentiles being gathered together into God's kingdom. The 24th chapter also focuses on holiness. The Israelites were instructed to provide pure olive oil 
to keep the, bur- the, keep the menorah of gold burning continually. The gold menorah symbolizes the word of God, the light that God gives us in an otherwise dark world. Those who don't know the Lord can't see that light of the word of God because they don't have the ministry of the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, which the oil represents. Yeshua is the light, and it's only through him that we can see and appreciate the spiritual things of God. He was talking about the Ner Tamid. We've talked about that many times in the past. You know, we have a somewhat Ner Tamid on our ark because we have to turn it off to move the ark uh, at the end of service. But in many synagogues, that light does not go out. Some will use electric, some will use solar powered, some will use actual lights like in the temple. Days when the priests had to go and continually feed more oil to keep it burning. See, it wasn't a matter of going in and lighting it, it was a matter of keeping it lit. Now, it's sad to say that many churches and synagogues have had their light go out because of blindness, stubbornness, unfaithfulness by the individual members. They fell short in many ways in neglecting to pray, neglecting to worship, neglecting to give, or even to allow the Ruach to use them, to minister to them, to lead them. So a holy God served by a holy priesthood in a holy place, illuminated by a holy light that provides for the needs of a holy people, this is what this parashah shows us. This never-changing God has promised to meet our needs as well. Do you hear what I said? This never-changing God has promised to meet our needs as well. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. No matter what we do, no matter what we say, that won't change. He is still God. Now, Amor ends with a man blaspheming or cursing God's name. And that man was stoned to death. See, holy people cannot use holy words about a holy God. Like I said at the beginning, the theme of this parsha is holiness. God is kadosh. God is holy. Holiness must be honored. Holiness is God. God is holy. So God must be honored. To defile what's holy can be extremely dangerous. It can and usually does result in divine judgment. You think what we can do to one another is bad? You haven't experienced divine judgment. See, serving the Lord's not easy, but it is very serious. Messianic Jews and Messianic Gentiles are holy by virtue of the fact that we have a holy Messiah. 
We are separated. We are set apart. We are sanctified. We are dedicated to serve a holy God. Now, unlike the requirement for the priests in Amor, Adonai doesn't require physical perfection from us. Today it's all about morality and holy living. Our entire mind, body, soul, spirit should be holy, set apart for God and for his service. Sounds easy. Sometimes it's difficult. So, in closing, I want, to, I want us to remember five things. Let's keep ourselves from the pollution of the world. And I know that's a very hard thing to do because we live in this world. We're exposed to the pollution of the world each and every day. But how do we keep ourselves cleansed? Keeping ourselves focused on his word. Look to him, seek him, not forgetting who saved us and the price that he paid. Number two, let's learn and practice the word of God. He spelled out for us very clearly what it is to be holy. Number three, let's always remember that Messiah Yeshua, the Holy Lamb of God, is our righteousness. Let's also hope that this polluted world will actually look at us and see that we are different. And in doing that, they come to us and ask, Why, what is different about you? I notice that you're not like all this other stuff going around here, that you avoid it, that you do the opposite. Perfect time to share your faith, share your testimony. And fifth thing, let's pray that they will turn from their unrighteousness and to our good, perfect, and holy God. 